All right, Genesis 22 is where we're at. Genesis 22, if you don't have a Bible, you can find uh, the, the passage in the bulletin. Um, this is the high point of Abraham's life, uh, the place of testing, where you finally discover that Abraham really, truly has the real deal, real faith, the genuine article. Um, let's read it together, and then we'll talk about it. Uh, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son, Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And Abraham said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. How can you tell somebody has true faith? That's the story. Yeah, that's the point of the story, right? Simple answer, you obey. More difficult details to the answer, you obey even if he asks you to do the most crazy thing you've ever heard him ask you to do. Uh, James makes this point in the New Testament. James was the brother of Jesus. He later would go on to become a believer and write a letter. And in James chapter 2, he says, you know, faith without works is dead. Uh, someone can't just claim to have faith and 
you just automatically believe that they really have it. Uh, a claim to faith is pretty cheap. How you know faith is real is because it issues in obedience to God. It issues in works. It leads to a life of faithfulness. And he actually uses this story as an example to back it up. He said, see, Abraham was a man of faith. God had counted Abraham righteous because he trusted in God. And yet Abraham's faith was not by itself. Abraham's faith was not naked of works. Instead, Abraham's faith put on good works and demonstrated itself through a long period of time, culminating in this story when Abraham was willing to even offer his dear son, his only son, the promised son, Isaac. James says, that's why we are justified. And he says, this is a crazy thing that he says because it seems so contradictory to Paul. He says, this is why we are not justified by faith only, but by faith and works. Now, of course, that gets our Protestant Presbyterian, you know, hackles or cackles or whatever you call them up, <laughs> gets, us, gets us all, you know, ruffled in our feathers. And it should because we do 100% agree with what Paul says that a man and a woman cannot be made right with God by their own works but only by faith in Jesus Christ. But what James is talking about is something different. He's talking not about how the person is justified but how the faith is justified. In other words, how faith is shown to be real faith. And in that sense, we're justified by faith alone, but we are justified by a faith that is never alone. A faith that is always married to good works and good deeds that we do in our lives, even when those good works and good deeds are very, well, seemingly crazy. Seemingly crazy. Okay, so look at your bulletin. I want to talk to you about, first of all, the tests that God gives Abraham. We just want to Try to discuss why it is God asked him to do this, of all things. Secondly, the journey that Abraham takes to obey, which would be hard at every step. And then finally, the provision that God gives at the end of it all, when Abraham does finally go through with it. Okay, The, the test, the journey, and the provision. First of all, the test. Uh, how did God test Abraham's faith? How does God test our faith? Well, by calling us to obey. And it's not necessarily a test if um, God calls us simply to do things only that we want to do. Right? Uh, it only becomes a test because God's asking us to do something that might not be natural to us or might not be super enjoyable to us or something that we might pick. And so notice there in uh, the first three verses... God tested Abraham by coming to him and telling him to take his son, his only son Isaac, and to lay Isaac down on an altar and kill him as an offering. I mean, can you think of anything worse to be asked to do than that? Actually, especially Abraham. I mean, how long has Abraham waited for Isaac? Remember, we gave the exact amount of years last time. How long was it? 25 years from the time God first said, hey, you're going to have a son, till the day Isaac was born. And now, just a few years after, God, you know, just a handful of years after, God's coming to Abraham saying, hey, remember that son? Notice how he emphasizes how dear the son is. Your son, your only son, Isaac, meaning he laughs, 
reminding Abraham of the joy that he had when Isaac was born. The one whom you love. I mean, he's, he's laying on the superlatives to say, you know, take that, that one, the one that you love the most, and be willing to lay him down on the altar. Now, here's the thing about a test. Not only does it require something that might not be natural to us, tests also require us to not fully be aware that the testing is going on. This kind of test anyway. Some tests, it's okay to know you're taking a test. But there are some tests that it kind of takes away the, the test for you to know it's a test. I mean, think about as a kid, a, a fire drill in school. Uh, we as teachers would never, I keep closing my Bible. Uh, we as teachers would never um, tell our kids that it was just a drill. Why? They would not take it. I mean, they, they, they would just laugh it off. And so, you know, the, everybody would come on the intercom, the, the, the alarms would go, and every single time, and sometimes even the teachers didn't know it was just a drill. And that was probably them trying to do the same psychology on us that we were trying to do on them. Because if the teachers knew it was just a test, they probably too would kind of shrug it off. Notice God does not say to Abraham, Abraham, hey, I'm about to test you. This is just a test. We know that, verse 1. Abraham didn't know that. All Abraham knew was God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, who gave you so much joy, the one you love, and sacrifice him for me. Offer him as a burnt offering, your highest treasure, the thing you love the most. Why do you think God asks that of Abraham? Seems gruesome to us, but he had not, and he never would again, right? He never would again. In fact, after this story, it becomes strictly forbidden in the Bible that you never are to offer a human being, as a, human, as a fellow human being, offering another human being. Other religions did this. There's plenty of evidence, you know, in world history of many religions offering human sacrifices, Probably in some ways, when God asked Abraham to do this, it wouldn't have been all that foreign to Abraham because he had lived in Babylon and he probably was very well aware of this concept. Sometimes the gods ask you to sacrifice your children because they did that. So it probably wasn't completely foreign to him. But nevertheless, it doesn't make it any easier. Yeah. Are you willing? Yeah. That's right. That's right. Did you, hear, did you hear that, everybody? Okay, let me, let me repeat it. And I'll repeat it for the sake of the recording, those watching this later or, or right now. Um, ben said, um, <clears throat> it's a test with whether we're going to trust God or whether we're going to trust our own thoughts. Okay? Sometimes that's the reason why God comes and asks us to do things that seem rather audacious or rather kind of incredible, unbelievable. Because he's testing. Are you going to listen to yourself or are you going to listen to me? Are you going to trust me? Maybe that's part of it, right? I think that's a good answer. Also, think about what a sacrifice did back then. What did a sacrifice communicate Yeah, 
trying to appease the gods, or in this case, God, right? Trying to appease God. Could it have been that Abraham thought, oh my goodness, I know that I'm a sinner. I know I've failed God many times. And I knew that was some, somehow there was going to have to be a cost paid for the forgiveness God has given me. Oh, I never, it's, it's going to be this. All that sin that I did is now going to cost me my son. I mean, you've got to imagine he has this feeling of heavy responsibility that God is asking him to do this. Well, we can't speculate too much, but Abraham clearly is being tested, but he doesn't know it. And, and the fact is, y'all, our faith is always tested in this way. I'm not saying through sacrificing your children, but it's always tested in this way. God is calling you to obey in costly ways, sacrificial ways, and sometimes hard-to-understand ways in order for you to have an opportunity to demonstrate that your faith in him is real. And sometimes it's not, you know, it's not by a voice, it's hardly ever actually by a voice from heaven saying, hey, go do this. A lot of times just the things God tells you to do in the Bible are costly enough and sacrificial enough and harder enough to understand that doing them and obeying them simply because God told you to is a great demonstration that you're putting your money where your mouth is. You really do believe and trust this God. Faith will cost you something. And, according to the Bible, if we're not willing for our faith to cost us everything, our faith is fake. It's really that all or nothing. Uh, let me tell you two stories from the Bible besides this. Really quick. Uh, one is about David. David the king. He was about to um, buy the piece of land on which one day the temple would be built. And he's buying it off this farmer guy. And the farmer says, oh, King David, your, your royal highness, you don't have to buy it from me. I'll give it to you. Remember David's response? I won't do that because I will not offer to God that which costs me nothing. Do you see? That's, that's a little glimpse of what we're talking about. David said, I won't take it for free. I'll pay for it. I'll pay the... In fact, he made him calculate the exact market price. No less. Because he did not want to offer God something that came cheap to him. Fast forward to Jesus. Second story. People are coming to Jesus all the time, large crowds of people. We talked about that this morning. They're crowding the room trying to hear Jesus. Well, often he would run some of them off because he would stand up and say, listen, I know y'all are saying you want to follow me, but let me tell you, unless you renounce everything you have, you cannot be my disciple. And every time Jesus would say something like that, the church membership role got, <laughs> got, got thinned out. You know, uh, We call that a Scottish revival. When the church membership role gets thinned out because of the hardness of the message. Jesus practiced the Scottish revival, even though he wasn't Scottish. And so does the whole Bible. The Bible never says faith is easy. And it's not because faith itself is some kind of meritorious thing. And it's not because you're saved by the obedience you do once you have faith. It's simply for this reason. Real faith is real trust. And real trust walks with God. And those who walk with God learn how to listen to him, learn from him, and obey him. Right? And so James says, faith without works is dead. Look at our father Abraham. He got tested even when God asked him to give the highest and best that he had. And he was willing to do it.
he was willing to do it. Let me ask you a couple questions. All right. First of all, it's an imagination question. Think about that thing in your life that you value the most. Would you lay it down for God? If he asked you. I would recommend that you think about that a lot, often. Sometimes I would even, I even sometimes close my eyes and imagine. I don't know if this is, I'm not endorsing this. This is just what I do, right? You can pick your own way. Close my eyes and imagine God asking me for my house, my family, this church, my ministry. And I imagine myself handing him the keys and the title. You know, why do I do that? Because I'm testing, I'm trying to test my own heart. Am I really, do I trust him? I'm not saying God will ask all those things of you. He may or may not. But you need to be willing. You need to know that you're willing. <laughs> and a huge part of how faith grows is by taking those, sometimes little, sometimes really big in the case of here, taking those steps of humble obedience to God that he's, he's asking of you. What do you value most? Are you willing to give that to the Lord? Are you willing to offer God things that cost you nothing? Do you show up in God's presence routinely having not prepared? Do you come here cheaply? This story is about how you should never come to God cheap. Faith doesn't do that. Faith gives. Wow. Amazing. Now secondly, let's look. That's the test. It's a big one. It's a, it's a sobering one. What's the journey like? First of all, let's start here. Let me just ask you, um, what would you do? Put yourself in Abraham's shoes. What's your next step after, you know, verse 2? <laughs> what would you do? Pray for a couple months. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. I need to know this is for real, for real. And so I'm going to sit on it, fast and pray, pray on it for a few years. I think I would go years instead of months, right? Drag my feet as much as I could drag my feet. Wouldn't you? That would be very understandable, I think, given what God has asked Abraham to do. And yet look at verse 3. Abraham is remarkable. And, and, and yeah, okay, God is more remarkable than Abraham, but I think we need to marvel a little bit here at the work God has been able to do in Abraham's life. Abraham's now over 100 years old. When we first met him, he was not like this. He was just not. Yeah, he had, he had real faith when we first met him, but it was, it was very small, very, you know, it, it went in fits and starts. Uh, here he is following God. Here he is taking Hagar. Here, here he is lying about his wife. Here he is building an altar to worship God. I mean, he's just here and there and here and there. But notice the very next day, early in the morning, Abraham rose, saddled his donkey, took two young men and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering, and he arose and went to the place that God had told him. He just took off across the desert with a knife, some wood, his son, and two helping hands. 
Talk to me about that. How does that strike you as a response? What are some of the ways you would describe Abraham's posture to God? Determined. Right. No hesitation. Immediate. What else? Yes, that's right. Isn't that neat? He doesn't say, hey, Sarah, go cut me some wood. Or, hey, servants, go cut me some wood and go get the knife. He goes and does it. He saddles the donkey. He wants to make sure it's done exactly the way God told him to. I mean, he's just showing how much his heart is in love with God. How much he trusts God. Well, then look at what happens. Not only does he do an immediate, thorough, no-nonsense obedience, uh, it doesn't stop and tell us about what Abraham felt. Not that feelings are unimportant, but it's just clear. Abraham just wants to do what God told him to do. And, and the next scene shows you why Abraham's able to do that. No matter how he feels, he's able to go forward. Uh, verse 4, On the third day he lifted up his eyes and he saw the place from afar. Because it was a mountain. Remember, God told him to go to a mountain. So he was able to see it in the distance. And he said to his young man, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and we will come again to you. Now, what did you notice in that? That's a little off. We will come again to you. Me and the boy are going to go worship. Both of us together and both of us are going to come back. Why is Abraham able to not hesitate, but to go straight to obedience thoroughly, immediately, right away? But, say it. Yes. Even by resurrection, it says, right? So he, he trusts God so much that he knows somehow God has promised me. On the one hand, that this boy is going to be my offspring, out of whom is going to come nations to bless the world. On the other hand, he just told me to kill him. I don't have any idea how those two things match, but oh, do they match. Because God is always consistent. God always keeps his promise. So what, whatever happens, we're going to go worship. I'm prepared to sacrifice him, but somehow me and the boy are coming back. That's bold. That shows Abraham has been much with the Lord. He's been with the Lord a lot. He's heard from God. He's, he's practiced obedience. Um, you know, he, also from the book of Hebrews, it talks about how we learn obedience through what we suffer. Abraham had done that. Uh, it talks about how we, through much use, learn how to discern between good and evil, right and wrong, through much practice and exercise. Uh, we, we work the muscles of faith. Uh, Abraham had been doing that over a long period of time you know, quarter of a century or more. And here all that strength is coming to the forefront. He trusts that God will do exactly what God says. And so in verse 9, you know, both of them, or verse 8, both of them went together. Um, oh, no, I'm sorry, I skipped a verse. Um, where was I at? Verse 7. Uh, Isaac then starts talking to his father, which is a touching scene, you know. Uh, if you, it's hard to read that and not, whew, it pulls on the heartstrings. My father, here I am, my son. Uh, father, uh, I see the fire. I see the wood. 
Where's the lamb? Where's the lamb? Where is the lamb? Right? And Abraham again shows his faith. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And the both of them went together. All the time in our lives, the test of true faith is, is obedience. Obedience that even costs. God may ask you to give your dearest thing. In fact, Jesus asks you to give your everything and to be willing to do that at every moment. That's a hard thing. The only way to do it is if you work on having an unreserved trust in the Lord your God. That you trust wholeheartedly in his character. You trust wholeheartedly in his promises. You trust wholeheartedly that when he gives you instructions, he's going to deal with the consequences. He's going to work it out somehow, some way. He trusts, in, as Abraham's favorite word for God is God Almighty. That's Abraham's title for God that he loves to use. He trusts in God Almighty. That the Almighty One is able to do things that he himself cannot work out. And so what this shows is faith without works is dead, but without faith, works are impossible. You get that? <laughs> That's important. You know, faith without works is dead. James tells us that. But, but without faith, it's impossible to do the works that truly please God, the sacrificial, bold, obedient works that God calls upon us to do. That's why we say well, you're not saved by your works. You're saved by faith. And that faith then issues itself in works. Faith produces works. And here we see it clearly. It's the faith of Abraham, the trust of Abraham, that is every step of the way producing the works that he is exhibiting. Uh, it's giving him the strength. It's giving him the, the confidence. It's giving him the, the steadiness to not waver in the face of very difficult decisions. And the Bible says if we have faith, we will obey like this too. We will obey like this too. Uh, we will learn that God can be trusted even when he tells us to do hard things. Now think about it. Which of God's commandments are hardest for you? Which one of the commandments that God has given you is testing you most right now? Let's answer out loud. What do you think? What are some of those commandments that are hard? Yep. Number one, okay, <laughs> which is you shall have no other gods before God, which, you know, that doesn't sound too hard if you're just reading it for the first time, but if you start actually thinking about it, that's really hard, like, because worship, which means just giving to God worth, you know, ascribing to him ultimate worth and value, well, wow, there's a lot of times where we don't do that to him, but we do do that to other people or things, so yeah, that's a hard one. Does that one take sacrifice? Yep, it does. It takes self-denial. Okay, what other commandments are hard? Oh, has there ever been a harder one? You shall not covet. What does that mean? Want something somebody else got. God didn't give it to you, he gave it to them. 
and you want it, and you're bitter or upset because you didn't get it. We all do it, don't we? It's hard. To not do that, to make the decision not to covet, takes sacrifice, takes dying to yourself, takes willingly choosing a more moderate life, a life that fits your own means rather than trying to live at somebody else's means. You know? It doesn't have to be things. Could be health. Amen. Yeah. Amen. And that's even harder, you know. Because health is one of those things that you really do feel like you have no control over. Whereas material things, you can convince yourself, well, if I just work harder, if I just scheme right, I can get that. But with health, isn't it right that you're up against something that you know is just out of your hands? Coveting is hard. It requires self-denial and sacrifice to choose to not covet. What this is teaching you is that God is daily testing your heart with all these things. We could go through all the commandments, and all of them are hard, really, if we think about them. God is testing you. And the only way you're going to be able to pass the test is by having a genuine trust in him. When God calls you to do something, it's good. When God tells you not to do something, that thing's bad and it's going to hurt you. Right? When God tells you not to do one thing, he's always telling you to do the opposite thing. When God tells you not or to do one thing, he's always telling you to avoid its opposite. You know, always. And all those things can be hard and can feel sacrificial because our hearts are full of all kinds of competing desires. But when God tells you to do it, the sacrifice is well worth it. The sacrifice is well worth it. One person said about Abraham, he knew that it was God the Almighty who was trying him. He knew that it was the hardest sacrifice that could possibly be required of him. But he also knew that no sacrifice was too hard when God was the one requiring it. And so he drew the knife. Did you notice that? Abraham was willing to go all the way to the very end of the bloody deed. He laid his son Isaac on the altar. He set the wood in place, put his son upon the wood, verse 9. And then verse 10, Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Mm. There's a reason why this story reverberates throughout the rest of the Bible, right? Everybody is mentioning this story throughout the whole rest of the Bible because this was a big deal. To be willing to do that, wow. And the basis of Abraham's obedience was he had learned that God was trustworthy. God promised me children. God told me to kill my only child. Don't know how that works, but I trust the God who told me. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go for it, and we're going to see what happens. It's in your hands, O oh God. Wow. Mm. Third thing. Once Abraham pulls the knife, he is met with the God of provision, the God who provides. 
Abraham knew he would. Uh, we already said he knew he was going to he was going to meet that God. Uh, in verse eight, he says, "God will provide Himself the lamb, my son. I know God, the provider, will show up somehow, some way. I and the boy will go worship, and we will return to you." Abraham already knew this, but there in uh, what verse is that? Verse eleven is when the provider actually shows up and begins his work of provision. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham and said, stop, don't hurt the boy. The test is over. I mean, here's the, finally the first time Abraham knew it was just a test. God really did not want Abraham to kill his son. I want everybody to understand that. God does not endorse child sacrifice, of course. Other people in other religions at other times have in fact practiced it. God never wanted it. But here, notice what the test was all about. Now I know, verse 12, that you fear God. Now I know it's real. Now I know your faith is genuine because you have not withheld your son, your only son for me. To give up an only son could be the highest test of loyalty ever known. And Abraham was one man willing to do that. Now, even as I say that sentence out loud, giving up an only son is the highest test of loyalty that's ever been known. It ought to remind you of something. Isaac says to Abraham, where is the lamb? We know where he's at. Do you know where he's at? For Abraham, it ended up just being this ram, verse 13, that was caught by the horns in a thicket. It just so happened. I mean, again, this is just God's provision. It just so happens a ram is caught at just the right time, rustling in the bushes. And Abraham's able to take that ram. Can you imagine his joy to take his son off the wood and to put the ram onto the wood and kill the ram instead of his son? He and Isaac both worshipped, and they did, in fact, return back to the men who came with them. But there is an even greater fulfillment to that idea that there is a lamb that God is going to provide on the mountain of the Lord. There's even greater fulfillment. And, here, and let me tell you just a few things here. Number one, when you obey God in a sacrificial way, you can rest assured that a more sacrificial God is going to meet you on the other side. This is the greatest argument for obedience I could possibly give you. When you obey God, you will find God more willing to sacrifice for you than you have ever been to sacrifice for him every single time. You say, how do you figure? He just gave a ram. Well, we've got to remember what God would later do, right? We, we have to remember what God would later do, by the way, at that very same mountain. Remember I told you about David? who said, I will not do for God anything that costs me nothing, and he bought with full price that, that hilltop where he would build the temple one day. Guess what that hilltop was? Mount Moriah, where Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac, his son. The temple stood at the place where Abraham sacrificed his son, or was willing to anyway. It was there at that temple that the sacrifices of lambs were offered day after day, week after week, year after year, from the time of Moses all the way to the time of Jesus. And it was in the shadow of that mountain 
that God went through with it and actually did sacrifice his son for the life of the world. Where is the lamb? That's a loaded question. In fact, that's the question of the entire Bible, right? Where is the lamb? How in the world is God going to finance my forgiveness? God's going around everywhere. He's a just God, and yet he's going around saying, I forgive you, and 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 everybody's thinking, what? How is God going to pay for this? Is God just permissive? Is he just like a, you know, indulgent uh, grandfather, just kind of sweeping things under the rug? No. How is God going to pay for this? The lamb. That on the hill, verse 14, the Lord will provide. On the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided or it shall be seen. And on the day when Jesus died, the temple curtain was torn in two, speaking to the fact that there needed to be no more lamb sacrifice because the lamb, capital L, had finally been put to death. The answer to Isaac's question took 2,000 years to answer, but God answered it. No wonder the lights went out when Jesus died. No wonder the earth shook. No, one even a, no wonder even a Roman soldier looked up and said, this must be the Son of God. <laughs> because something incredible was happening there. The greatest test of loyalty is the willingness to give up a one and only dearly beloved Son who fills your heart with delight, whose name is Laughter. And there is no greater description of God the Father's love and affection for his Son than that. He filled him with joy and delight. He was his beloved son. He was his only son. He was well pleased with him. And yet he laid him down on the altar and did not stop the knife. He finished the job. Now, what do y'all think about that? Would you be willing to obey a God like that? Hmm? Why, do, why are we so slow to obey that God? Why am I so slow to obey that God? Am I right? No matter how much my little obedience is going to cost my little heart and my little life, when I go through with it, I'm going to be staring in the face of a God who gave a sacrifice that the world cannot fathom for me. Man. Turn with me, if you will. Now, this is where we want to end today. Turn to Romans 5. And I just want to show you how this is not just me kind of hemming and hawing up here, but this is the scriptural interpretation of what God did at the cross. Romans 5, verse 6. While we were still weak, at the right time, 
Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You catch the logic? If God did not spare his own son when we were enemies, what do you think he's going to do for you? How is he going to treat you now that you're his friends? Now go out and obey him with reckless abandon. (laughs) Sacrifice all your Isaacs. Isn't that what he's saying? Look at Romans 8, last one. Romans 8, same idea, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or sacrificial obedience or giving up the things that are nearest and dearest to you? We could add to the list. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. The life of faith is a life of sacrifice. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's what it means to be a Christian. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. When you obey God and you sacrifice to do it, you will meet on the other side a greater sacrificer than you are. Therefore, you can do it. Therefore, you must do it. Therefore, it's a joy to do it. Amen? Think about those areas that you struggle to obey. Think about those most valuable things to you that you would really have a hard time giving up. Do business in your heart with God. Build your trust in Him over time. Work on that. You actually have to work to get that to happen. Build your trust in Him. And go for it. Figure out what he's asking you to do and go do it. It's the best way to live. Says the one 
who did not spare his one and only son, but freely gave him up for us all. I'll believe him. Will you? I think we should believe him. All right. Any thoughts? Love to hear hear what you, your response to the greatest test. Got one minute, so. Yep. Yeah. You look at Abraham and you just go, man, there was, I like this, there was a man of great faith. And suddenly, I suddenly kind of realize I never say that about anybody unless that faith produces a result. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you never say, oh, man, that guy really talks a big game. What great faith he has. You never say that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's demonstrated. That's exactly what James means. Faith without works is dead. Yep. That's right. Great. Any other thoughts? Mike? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. That's a great question. It may be. You know, it may be like a hint towards, you know, the three days of death for Jesus, perhaps. But, yeah, I mean, all, all the things are similar. That There's wood, that the son carries wood up a hill um, while talking to his father. You know, he rides a donkey into Jerusalem. Like you said, three days through the desert. I mean, there's all types of stuff going on here. A, a literature professor would go crazy <laughs> with all the, would go bonkers with all the symbolism. Yeah. I, I think it's very appropriate to see some of that as being legitimate. Yeah. Um, Mike and I have actually, I think you were there when we were in Israel, have ridden on the trail from where Abraham went in Beersheba towards Jerusalem. Remember when we rode the camels? That was on the very trail from Beersheba to Jerusalem. Um, it, it was very cool to, to remember that this is the way Abraham went with Isaac. I was riding on a camel, which was also cool. So I always recommend that. So, And they do spit, by the way. They do. Camels, they spit. It's real, yeah.